by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now in this verse we return to a study of named persons of faith. And this person with saving faith, Rahab, is perhaps the most surprising one of them all. She is the last individual that the writer expounds on before concluding the chapter with a list of names and events. So first, let's look at the person of faith, Rahab. Because she's perhaps unexpected to us, let's spend some time thinking about her. Her story is told back in two chapters in the book of Joshua. First in Joshua 2, and I do want to read most of that chapter, and then selected verses from Joshua 6. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now, of course, almost none of that was true. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stacks, stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver their lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills 
or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath, so that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And then in chapter 6, verse 17, this is Joshua speaking, and he says this to the people, the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. And then verses 22 and 23 and 25. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. Now that may sound like it's outside of them, but that's actually, well, physically, but they are identifying this woman and her family with them as opposed to all the rest of the land, which is going to be destroyed. Then verse 25. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. So who is Rahab's savior? Well, in one sense, she is, according to Hebrews. In another sense, Joshua is. But of course, ultimately, God is. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Notice four things about this woman. First, she is a woman. She is a woman. She is one of the few females highlighted in Hebrews 11. There are many exemplary believers, but only a few are women. The first, of course, was Sarah that we looked at. Moses' mother is commended, although she is not named. And although these may be few, they remind us that faith is not tied to gender. Faith is not tied to gender. Saving faith is not a blessing exclusive to males. Galatians 3.28 teaches that men and women are the same in this regard in Jesus Christ. They can be persons of faith and be saved. 
A second thing about this person of faith, she was a woman. Secondly, she was a prostitute. She is called in our text, not Rahab, but Rahab the prostitute. In the book of James, she is also referred to by the same phrase. It's only in Matthew's genealogy that her name, Rahab, stands alone. Now, because she is so prominent in the book of Joshua and in the lineage of David and even Jesus Christ and made a premier example of saving faith in the New Testament, some have said, well, it can't be that she was really a prostitute. They've tried to soften or change this title. And so there are numerous, mostly older commentators, both Jewish and Christian, who prefer to think of her simply as an innkeeper. Or one person has even proposed that she was really just running a grocery store. Rahab the grocer. Now, it's not at all likely that the Hebrew word means either of those two things, right? But in the New Testament, there can be no doubt about what her occupation was. In our verse, the Greek word is porne. And you don't have to be a language scholar or have, take, have taken even a single class in Greek to know what that says about her. It only means one thing. It means she made her living in Jericho as a secular harlot. She wasn't a temple prostitute, which was also common in the ancient world. She wasn't associated with the cultic worship of a, of a false god through sexuality in a temple setting. She wasn't that. And we know this because in the Old Testament, there are actually two different words used for prostitute. And one of them is for a secular prostitute, and one is for a religious or cultic or worship prostitute. Now it's clear because of the word used that Rahab was an ordinary or secular harlot. So it might strike us as odd <laughs> that after she joins the people of God and she's made such a tremendous public example in the New Testament of faith that she would still be called Rahab the prostitute. It's not just Rahab. She is Rahab the prostitute. <laughs> but this was not uncommon in this culture or time. Think about the apostles. One of them was Matthew. No, not Matthew. Matthew the tax collector. You know, the only occupation that was even worse than what Rahab did? Yeah, no, true, right? The worst thing you could be or do as a man, a Jewish man, was to work for the Roman government taking taxes from the Jewish people. You were much more despised than a mere prostitute. And yet he's still called, after saving faith, Matthew the tax collector, or at least he's referred to that way. There was at least one more. Simon the zealot. 
Simon the insurrectionist. Simon the rebellious. Simon the revolutionary. Probably an anarchist. This is simply a way in a day when lots of people shared the same name to identify a person. Did you know that in the 1600s, almost 30% of all the men in England had the name John? John, third of the congregation stands up, right? So you, you have to come up with ways of identifying these people, which might be by their work or their uh, home location or some other way. Well, this is simply an older version of that. This is Matthew the tax collector, Simon the zealot, Rahab the harlot, all right? What is, what is important, though, is this, and, and this is emphasized, really, by the use of this name. Just like being a woman didn't disqualify her for saving faith, neither did her prostitution. Now, of course, she, she couldn't stay in that course of life, <laughs> if she believed in the true God, and she wouldn't, and she didn't. But this wasn't a sin so evil that she couldn't be saved. This is obvious not only for, from her own story, but even from the teaching of one of her descendants, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 21, 31, he declares to the chief priests and elders, truly I say to you, and you all know what that word is, it's the word amen. Amen. What I'm about to tell you, you can depend on, you can count on this, he said. I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. He's speaking to the religious leaders and he's saying, the worst example of a man and the worst example of a woman in your mind, they go into the kingdom of God ahead of you. They are not lost because they know they're lost so they can be saved. Your problem is you think you're safe. You can't be found unless you're lost, right? So neither Rahab's gender nor her sinful occupation put her beyond salvation. Make the application to yourself, my friends. Right? Thirdly, though, it gets worse. She was a Gentile. <laughs> she is a Canaanite woman living in Jericho. She is not a Hebrew. She is not an Israelite. She is not Jewish. Surely, this is an impediment to salvation in the Old Testament times. Yes, it was an impediment, but it wasn't an ultimate one. Because of her faith, she is pulled out of Jericho and placed into Israel. Again, the last verse we read out of Joshua 6 said, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day. She became a part of the people of God. She put off her prostitution. How do we know that? Because she married a man named Salmon, according to the scriptures. 
and they had a son together. And his name was Boaz. And Boaz married Ruth. Did any of you know that Ruth's mother-in-law after Naomi was Rahab the prostitute? There's not a lot of Jewish blood flowing in the descendants from here, are there? <laughs> David's got a lot. He, David is the, Rahab is the great, great grandmother of David. David's got a lot of non-Jewish blood in him. The Savior did not have, oh, he was utterly pure morally, but he wasn't purely Jewish. He had Canaanite blood in him, right? And that's really good, because that means you and I can be saved. It means he can stand in our place. He can live and die and be raised for us, not, not just the one or two of you who might have Jewish blood in you. Right, David? Further down the line, her Gentile blood reaches to King David and even to Jesus Christ, her Savior. She was not only incorporated into the Old Testament people of God, she actually earned an honored place in it. And all of this was promised to Abraham in his covenant from God, right? He was promised that the Gentiles would be justified by faith. That was part of the plan of grace promised to him. So none of these first three descriptors, being female, being a prostitute, being a Gentile, ultimately prevented her from experiencing salvation. Now, there's one more thing about Rahab, and this is the most important. She believed. She had faith. Rahab is a woman of saving faith. Verse 31 begins... By faith. And remember, in this context, that means saving faith. You know, she didn't hear the truth, what in our day we would call the gospel. She didn't hear that in the ordinary way. She wasn't taught it by godly parents. She didn't uh, hear it from the Jewish priests. How did she hear these things? How did she come to know the true God? By rumor. By whisper down the lane. We just heard a report from somebody I trust. The sea stopped. It, it, it pushed back and this huge group of people came, came through and they've defeated all these kings. And Rumor. <laughs> but the rumors were true. And so the gift of saving faith could be hers. According to Joshua 2, she knew the covenant name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. She uses it multiple times. She believed him to be the true God. Chapter 2, verse 11. She believed in the power and right of this God over all things, even including herself, her family, and her city. She believed the promises of God to Israel that he was going to give them this land, including this city. And isn't this at the heart 
of Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith, right? What God has promised he's going to do, you believe, and so then you live according to that. That's exactly what Rahab is doing here. Yes, she knows very little, but she knows enough. And when we respond to the truth that God gives us in faith, we get more truth and we get more faith. It's the way God works. So she believed God's word, even through rumor. Well, that's, that's this person of faith. That's what we know about Rahab. Now, much more quickly, the action of faith. Right? We've seen the person, now the action of faith. The end of verse 31 says, she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. Right? By faith, she didn't perish because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Literally, in the Greek, it is, she received them in peace. I actually like that language better. The literalness isn't wooden at all. I think it actually conveys more truth to us. There was a war going on. And she received these men in peace. She did what a good innkeeper should do. Her faith didn't cause her to stand back and do nothing. She didn't let go and let God. Right? Because her faith was real and living, she acted according to it. And her actions display a thoroughly changed loyalty. She is no longer, when we meet her, she is no longer a patriotic citizen of Jericho and its Baals. She knows the city belongs to the true God and Israel now, and she is not against this. She is for this. She has changed sides. She is not just saving her own skin. That's not what by faith means. No, she has switched loyalties. So she hides the spies and she lies to her rulers. She risks her own life for a future salvation. This is, according to our verse, an act of faith. You see, her allegiance is now with Israel's God. And this is, in our verse, contrasted with everyone else in the city of Jericho, except a few family members. This is a different response from everyone else. They are described in our verse as, quote, those who were disobedient. Now, that word disobedient is a really interesting one. We've met it, I think, two times earlier in Hebrews. But it means this. It means to refuse to be persuaded. It describes an, a response to truth where a person refuses to believe refuses to be persuaded that what they're told is right. So it's about faith, this word, and it's about obedience at the same time. <laughs> you see, the gospel and all truth about God in a broad sense is a promise command. It's both. It holds out wonderful hopes, right? <laughs> but the gospel's not just a suggestion. 
It's not a take it or leave it. It's a command from the reigning king of the universe. It's not a theory for you to weigh in your minds and entertain and maybe try. It is a conveying of truth that you are expected to embrace. To believe, my friends, is to obey God. This is the obedience of faith that Paul opens the book of Romans with and closes the book of Romans with. It's not a meritorious work. But it is the work that God calls every man and woman, boy and girl, to do. To believe on his only begotten son. And that's what she's doing here. She's responding to the truth of the word of God. Back in chapter 3, verse 18, the preacher said that Israel was disobedient, this very same word. And so they wouldn't and couldn't enter God's rest. And the next verse, verse 19, explains this disobedience. What was it? It was unbelief. It was unbelief. That's what it says. So Rahab and her neighbors, they all heard the same news, the same rumors about Israel's God. But she, by grace, believed the reports when no one else did. And then she lived obediently while they were characterized by disobedience. She received the spies in peace while the rest did what? They fought and died. So finally we see the third point, the result of faith. The person of faith, the action of faith, and the result of faith. The result is, according to verse 31, she didn't perish. This means that by faith she saved herself, both physically and in comparing Scripture with Scripture, spiritually. Her neighbors perished in the battle. Everyone except a few family members died, but she lived. (laughs) And she didn't live as a slave or a second-class citizen, but as an honored full member of Israel. But more than continued physical existence, her faith was a true belief in the true God that led to true good works and eternal life. Her story is recorded in Scripture a surprising number of times. Why? She is an example to the rest of us that if we are to be saved, our faith cannot merely be in our heads, but it must be whole-souled and life-changing. To receive the spies put her life at risk. To choose peace with Israel meant to be at war with Jericho. These were the ultimate commitments that showed what she valued and who she trusted. So she was, according to chapter 10, verse 38, a righteous one who lived by faith. Rahab's faith resulted in bodily and spiritual salvation. Well, I have three uses from this verse. First, Rahab should serve as a strong reinforcement 
to the doctrine that saving faith always works. Right? She's a very obvious example. That saving faith is a faith that works. She's actually one of the main examples of this, not just here, but in the New Testament. <laughs> if you go to the book of James, he uses just two examples. Abraham, well, of course, you use Abraham. He's the man of faith. And Rahab? Right, Rahab. We have been taught this truth repeatedly in this chapter, that saving faith works. And this is important to note, because the kinds of faith that don't lead to good works don't save. As James said, Rahab was justified, that is, she was proven righteous by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith alone saves, yes. But not a faith that is alone. A dead faith won't save you. Only a living faith will save you. So, brethren, follow Paul's inspired command from 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. He goes on, test yourselves. Or, or don't you realize this about yourselves, he says, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail to meet the test. Faith is empty. Faith has no glory in itself. But faith unites us to Christ so that all of the riches that are his, all of the power, all of the goodness, all of the, you could just go on and on in that list, they all become ours. One of the things it means is, as Paul puts it here, it's through faith that Jesus Christ lives in you and me. So faith unites us to Christ, and he lives in us. Can Jesus live in you truly, and no one be able to tell it? Does that make any sense? No, not biblically. Can he live in you, and you not be enabled, even if imperfectly, to love the brethren and do them good? Can he be alive in you, and yet you be spiritually dead? Impossible. <laughs> it's nonsense. Remember the text. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith. Saving faith makes us alive. We are alive. And this means two things. If you are utterly empty of any and all good works, you can be sure you do not have saving faith. And secondly... For Christians, your faith means that you're alive and able to do all sorts of good to God's glory and other people's benefit. So get on with that business. <laughs> live like Rahab. Go after it. Be who you, live out who you are. Let me even put it this way. I urge you to imitate your righteous mother in the faith, Rahab. And be full of believing obedience.
So that's the first use. Secondly, and I suspect we'll have some afternoon conversations about this one. That's okay. Secondly, it is morally right to protect saints in times of persecution. It is morally right. It is a righteous thing, regardless of whatever man's law says. It is a righteous thing to protect saints in times of persecution. I get this use, of course, from the fact that Rahab hid the spies. She chose to side with God's people. Now, I know. I know, and I mean this sincerely. We must be very, very careful in applying any Old Testament national or military situation to ourselves. The U.S. is not Israel. The U.S. is not Israel. The U.S. is not, never has been, never will be, Israel. Right? Neither we nor any other nation has a command from God to attack another nation and burn their cities to the ground. Now, this isn't the time to discuss Christian views of what constitutes a just war and how in self-defense those same things might happen. That's not the purpose of our text, nor, nor where I'm going. But the New Testament church does not fulfill Israel in this way. We are not Christendom in the sense of a Christian political or civic body. We are not. Instead, as the church, we are a spiritual people, and we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But pastor, what happens when the harlot, what happens when Babylon war against the saints? What? What are we supposed to do? Like it says in the book of Revelation. Be patient. Endure by faith. Use spiritual weapons. And we do fight with spiritual weapons. Prayer and the word and righteousness. Now, I understand that we live in two kingdoms. We are citizens of a country. And that country may be uh, unjustly put in danger. And you may be called upon, especially in a town like this, you may be called upon to be part of the, our nation's response to justly defend itself. But we're not talking about that kingdom in this verse and in this application. We're talking about us as the church, not as American citizens in any way here. We're talking about ourselves as Christians. And that means that in times of persecution, Christians side with the innocent people of God. We stand with the martyrs. We stand with each other. We side with those people who hid Paul from the governor of Damascus and let him down in a basket through a window in a wall so he could escape. Amen. We protest against religious intolerance and persecution in every country, including our own, on moral grounds. You may argue, but 
but there's good constitutional ground and there's other, yeah, yes, yes, yes. As citizens of the U.S., you should argue that way. But as a Christian, you need to do it on moral grounds. Amen. Don't forget who you are. We ask the Canadian government to release a pastor from prison being held for the heinous crime of leading the corporate worship of God. Faith sides with God and his people when the government persecutes Christ through his body, the church. Let me say that again. Faith sides with God and his people when the government, whether they know it or not, persecutes Christ by persecuting his body. So it is morally right to protect saints in times of persecution. If you were in Nazi Germany and a Jew or a Baptist, because that happened too, or a gypsy or one of the other came looking for help, you don't have to care about what that nation's law was against hiding them. That means nothing to God. And all the more so when it's true saints. Well, thirdly and finally, here's a wonderful picture of the wideness of God's mercy. Rahab is a beautiful picture of just how wide is God's mercy. You know, humanly speaking, Rahab is, is not one we would expect to be given the gift of faith. That probably reflects more about how much remaining pride there is about us and where we came from and our sins. <laughs> That's probably not a very biblical view of Rahab. Every mere mortal born of man since the fall lives in a stench-filled garbage can. Some of your garbage cans that you grew up in were very nicely painted on the outside. And they had addresses and they had all kinds of nice, neat things. But you still stink, like I still stink, <laughs> from that garbage can. And yet, we know what we mean when we say, yeah, I wouldn't have expected her to believe. We need to think a little bit more like Jesus, who didn't expect the religious people to believe, and he was right. He expected those who were really sinners <laughs> to come to him. The mercy of God is so vast, and the depth of grace is so deep that it encompasses both men and women tax collectors and prostitutes, Jews and Gentiles. It even extends to most difficult people to save the religious teachers like Paul, who rightly labeled himself the chief of sinners. So where are you in that spectrum? Are you way over here with Paul and the religious teacher side? Are you over here with the tax collectors and prostitutes? Or are you somewhere in between? One extreme or the other? Well, wherever you are, God's salvation is near. You have heard the truth this morning. 
I would urge you to embrace it, to believe it, <laughs> to save yourself from perishing. You don't have to die in Jericho. You don't have to die in Jericho. Come with us and live in heavenly Jerusalem. There is no sinner so bad that God cannot and will not save him. But you must come. You must acknowledge your sin, your worthlessness, your Rahab-like worthlessness. And on the other hand, you know, some of you have a lot of righteousness. That's a very hard thing to get over because it's actually not righteousness at all. God looks at it as leprous rags, but you think you have some good to bring to him. As long as you think you have some good in yourself to come to him, you're going to have a very hard time believing. And he will not accept you. But the righteousness of Christ can overcome your self-righteousness. This verse teaches us that faith in Jesus Christ is the way not to perish. Faith in Jesus Christ is the way not to perish. So we say, as John Bunyan famously said, come, <laughs> come and welcome to Jesus. You who need him, come. He's never turned away one who truly came to him in faith, wanting to not perish. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cannot save ourselves. A human Joshua cannot save us. But you call us to use means so that you can save us. And we believe you do powerfully use those means. You work them in us to believe. And so we, your people, ask that for those who are not your people here, you would give them the gift of faith, that you would do the work that they cannot do so that they can turn in repentance and faith to you and not perish, but be saved. We thank you for this beautiful picture of uh, not only salvation by faith, but the abundance of grace and even honor that you sh shower on believers, regardless of their past, uh, once they are yours. And we, we look forward to heaven and the fullness of what it will mean to be adopted children of the Most High God. We request these things in Jesus' name. Amen.